0: So Ben, we have a few more people here in the studio with us
2: than usual. Well, we're not even in the Jungle Studio. We're not. Yeah. Where uh, are we? We are in the uh, Saul Zilka Auditorium at Brookings, where we are reporting rational security in front of a live audience.
0: Usually our live audiences are drinking and don't have knives, so I hope this goes well.
2: <laughs> so our live audience today is uh, a the Brookings Council, which is a group of, of, of supporters of the Brookings Institution. And uh, we have never done one of these before, uh, but for uh, let let's take the opportunity to say, uh, rational security is is open to doing live tapings uh, in front of uh, in front of cool audiences. Show up at Ben's office. So sure. yeah, just show up come anytime. On come to your
3: house.
1: I, I have to say though, as you noted, usually in the past, our audience members have been imbibing before they listen and I'm, I'm a little wary about the reception we're it's gonna get from a sober crowd. To it. yeah,
2: not, <laughs> so the message to the, to the Brookings people, if people want beer, <laughs> give it to them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the How Many Elephants Make a Stampede Edition.
1: <laughs> wow, what a crowd.
2: We should do this more often.
0: I'm Shane Harris, live action reporter here at Brookings with our delightful room full of friends and my good friends Susan Hennessy, Tamara Kaufman, Woodis, and Ben Woodis. Hi, guys. Hey
2: Shane. hey, Shane.
0: I'm so glad we could all get together on a slow news week.
2: Nothing going on. Yeah, nothing. Nothing happening. Not not like not like there's anything to talk
0: about. I've lost week. track of half the things we're going to talk about today. So you know, it's just been that kind
1: of week. Maybe we should switch to two episodes a week. You think? Uh, actually, we're <laughs> just no. No, I go pro and
3: just have it be a continuous live stream. of Yeah, that would
0: be awesome. good, like a Facebook Live kind of thing. Yeah, yeah but all the time. Just follow us around. Actually, all the
1: time. I feel like life in Washington is just an ongoing reality show all the time, and I wish that we could take a commercial break.
0: It's time for us to keep up with the times, guys. On the podcast this week, leading GOP lawmakers say there's nothing normal about the Trump administration. The deaths of four Americans in Niger raise new questions about the legal footing of the U.S. fight against terrorism, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions seems to have no plan for future elect Russian election meddling. Um, let's start with uh, where our title derives from this week. Um, we saw a pretty extraordinary display, both from... Senator Bob Corker, uh, in more comments that he made in an ongoing feud with the president, this time not only questioning the president's judgment, uh, but seeming to question the fit his fitness for office, and making it clear that Corker did not think that the, Trump had reached any kind of there was any recoverable point. There's no pivot, essentially. And then, of course, Senator Flake. Uh, announcing that he will not seek reelection in Arizona and making a eloquent and fairly impassioned speech on the floor of the Senate uh, without calling out the president by name directly. It was pretty obvious that that is who he was directing his comments to about the coarsening of leadership and the lack of leadership. Certainly. I think he thinks both in the party, but also in the country. And then, of course, Senator McCain making uh, more <laughs> kind of explosive comments uh, in, in last week. Um, we really seem to be seeing top leadership in the GOP calling out this administration. We've talked about about these things on the podcast before, but this seems to be reaching some kind of Large set of numbers here. One thing I will note is that these are all people who are either said they're not running again for office or are presumed not to be perhaps running for office again. But Susan, let's just start with you. I mean, maybe talk a little bit about Flake's comments, but what what are we seeing here that's different? Is it just, is it the numbers? Is it the tone? Uh, of the opposition here from the Republicans?
3: Yeah, so I thought, um, I thought fake speech was a really remarkable moment. Ben wrote about um, his sort of responses as well on Lawfare yesterday. Right afterwards, you know, right so this, this call to, to moral clarity and, and to the leadership of his party. I mean, I think what we're seeing right now is um, sort of senators reaching decision points, right? There, there are really only three paths here. Um, you stay and fight, you leave and fight, or you stay and you try and make it work. Um, and we've seen different uh, sort of different uh, members of Congress, with sort of you know their own personal sensibilities, try and work through these various options. And I think what we are seeing, particularly as you know, sort of Corker, uh, Flake, and McCain, three people who are presumed not to—Flake you know, has announced, but uh, and Corker has announced, but McCain presumed to probably not be re- uh, running for re-election again in five years. Um, right. That that seeing that actually that path. Of, of deciding that you're not going to try and make it work you're not going to stay in, in Congress uh, you know that is the one of the only ways to do the, sort of this um, this full-throated articulation of opposition to the president. I think what's going to be most interesting is what Flake's words are followed by, either in terms of the reaction of his own caucus, sort of, you know, we did see members stand up and, and praise him. Uh, what sort of actions are going to follow, right? Is he going to sort of go along to get along and, and uh, you know, represent GOP values for the next 14 months he has in office? Or is he really going to carve out a third independent sort of party role for himself and, and be obstructionist and oppositional uh, against Trump on the issue? that he cares about
1: right so I I think that that's a very good question to ask in other words is he trying to rescue something the Republican Party the conservative movement whatever label he might attach to it or is he going to stand in the path of the oncoming train that is Trumpism and its takeover of the Republican Party and I don't think we actually know the answer to that yet Um, I I think it's worth noting, too, that in addition to these um, notable senatorial defections, if you will, from what had up until now been a sort of uh, uh, cohesive willingness to go along, uh, with the with the president on Capitol Hill. Uh, you also had President George W. Bush come out in the past week with a major speech um, at, as part of rolling out a, a report by his presidential foundation on democracy and the future, the crisis in Western democracy, a speech about uh, the crisis of confidence that Americans seem to have in our own political system but not all that oblique uh, criticisms of Trump and Trumpism in the process of of talking about that. Uh, And I think that it's notable not only that you have a former president kind of breaking the former president rule, especially a former president of the same party. Yeah. and um, this
0: one in particular who really abides by it. Right, yeah.
1: who, who certainly up until this point had, ab- had abided by it, um, but also doing so at an event that he and his, li- his library or his presidential foundation set up in a bipartisan way. So his speech followed on a panel discussion with Nikki Haley from the current administration, Condoleezza Rice from George Bush's administration, <laughs> and Madeleine Albright from Bill Clinton's administration. And Rice and Albright were both also critiquing Trump's approach to diplomacy, the role that Nikki Haley has played in um, facilitating uh, what appears to be a shaking of some major American alliances and and American leadership on certain issues, especially democracy, which was the theme of this conference. So I think when you add that... um, you, you have more than some Republicans who are saying, wait a minute, we need to fight for the future of our party, fight for the future of our movement, and maybe need to do it from outside elected office because we can't win right now. I think we also have some Republicans who are joining forces with Democrats and others to make broader arguments about the health of American democracy. And you know, as we think about where, where does this all go, um, the big piece that's still missing is Republicans who are willing to put themselves in front of the train on policy uh, and on politics.
2: So a couple of things, uh, disconnected thoughts in response to those uh, uh, two collections of thoughts. Uh, the first is, you know, it's actually very rare that you get to see a great Senate speech now, and you know, we think of the Senate proudly calls itself the greatest deliberative body on earth, but it actually doesn't do a lot of deliberation. And certainly the tradition of great Senate oratory, like if you think about as, you know, kind of Daniel Webster and John C. Calhoun debating things, right, that's a long dead tradition. And, and the idea that there is, uh, that somebody actually goes to the Senate floor and makes what is genuinely an important speech, is a novel moment, uh, and it's very rare that it happens. And uh, this speech was actually important, uh, not merely uh, in being well thought through and and impassioned, but also in containing some, I I thought, uh, sort of remarkable intellectual content. And the intellectual content uh, is not merely that we need to tell the truth about we as Republicans, we as conservatives, need to tell the truth about the administration, uh, but that and that we need to stop being complicit in it and stop covering for it. Uh, but that we need to take active steps, what, what the Russian intelligence people might call active measures, uh, to f- put ourselves in a position of freedom in order to do that. And that means to not seek reelection in circumstances in which doing so would cause us to have to be constantly looking over our shoulders at a base that, uh, that we actually can't satisfy in a fashion consistent with our consciences. And that's a, that's a point that Bob Corker has teased at and, uh, and made uh, in sort of general terms. But Flake really spent the time to lay it out as an analytic matter. And it's a very powerful argument. Um, that I think will actually be remembered um, and it'll be remembered as a speech and an argument. Um, uh, the second thing which, you know, I, I think got overlooked in Corker's remarks yesterday was that he began to tease the answer to the question, okay, so you give a speech like this or you, you know, you lambaste the president, but then what do you do? Right? And he announced yesterday in his conversation, uh, and people didn't really pick it up, that he's going to be holding a bunch of hearings on areas where the administration is doing you know, what he described as grave damage to American national security interests. And, uh, and Flake also talked about that, the sort of dismantlement of the, the rules-based order that the United States has done so much to create and benefits from so much. Uh, And so I think you are not only seeing the the statement of principle, which is important in its own right, but you're beginning to see the outlines of what an action plan looks like for that group of Republicans who they're not going to start voting with Democrats on all kinds of policy matters that separate liberals from conservatives because at the end of the day, guess what? They're conservatives, right? And there are certain things that they believe in as conservatives that that this administration, at least when it gets around to doing anything that resembles policy, does represent or tries to represent. Uh, but an action plan that sort of reflects getting in the way, as Tamara says, the the putting yourself in the path of the train on the uh, on the leadership personality and sort of dangerous uh, conduct and, and uh, uh, corrosive um, leadership issues that the president is sort of embodies as uh, the sort of proud ignorance with which he, and bullish, bullishness with which he in, uh, routinely engages. And I think that's a pretty substantial development given how narrow uh, Mitch McConnell's, uh, you know, functional majority in the Senate really is.
0: Well, let me just read <clears throat> a passage that gets at this thing from Flake's remarks, which we've been talking about. He said at one point if I have been critical it is because I believe it is my obligation to do so and as a matter of duty and conscience the notion that one should stay silent and as the norms and values that keep America strong are undermined and as the alliances and agreements that ensure the stability of the entire world are routinely threatened by the level of thought that goes into 140 characters. The notion that we should say or do nothing in the face of such mercurial behavior is ahistoric and, I believe, profoundly misguided. So let me just ask the the obvious question here. I mean, maybe I'm overreacting. This sounds like the beginnings, the intellectual underpinnings of an argument about the 25th Amendment and removal, which we've talked about on this show before, or some kind of step to fundamentally block the president. He's not just saying... We need to bring him over to our side. He is sounding an alarm and exhorting lawmakers to say, "This can't stand. This has to stop."
3: Right. So I'm I'm less convinced that he's sort of referencing the 25th Amendment, and it's more likely that he would sort of be talking about impeachment-type st- proceedings. I think what it is is it's the beginning of an intellectual argument for Congress reasserting or, or reclaiming its constitutional duty as a co-equal branch of government, and that we sort of have become complicit in this or complacent in this notion that. Well if Congress is controlled by members of the president's own party then it's all just kind of one big thing and it's you know they all just are working in concert to achieve common goals and that's not quite how it's supposed to work even whenever they happen to share uh, the same party ident- identification And so I think that uh, we've heard sort of even some Senator you know Ben Sass and some others sort of start to talk about their sense of duty their sense of constitutional duty and I, I think what they're talking about is their their role they're independently assigned an equal role um, that that I think will end up becoming, you know, obstructionist or at least a counterbalance to the president as opposed to, you know, one of the things that Trump has articulated is that he views Congress as sort of his functionaries, right? Go do this. I told you to pass health care. I told you to repeal Obamacare. I told you to pass tax cuts. Go go, get it done without sort of um, extending that respect. And and so I think that that's the, we are hearing the beginnings of sort of the argument that's going to, or, or the roadmap that's going to come, but, but I think it's more sort of that that traditional constitutional one,
1: yeah. I mean, I I know Shane that you've you've been of the view that a twenty fifth amendment move against President Trump is more likely than an impeachment move against President. Although Trump. both
0: highly unlikely,
1: right? Um, but you, you know you're on the record, and I I think though that I agree with Susan that I don't think that's what these senators are indicating. Um, I, I think that what this criticism refers to. Uh, is the danger of international crisis posed by, as Flake put it, a mercurial president who um, does foreign policy in 140 characters. Uh, Also, why Hasn't Twitter given him double the length uh, for Twitter? I think you know, given that it's pretty random, it's very interesting that they've chosen to exclude him from double the he length.
3: More space, he would articulate. Right, he'd turn
1: a corner. He's way. maturing. He just doesn't have space to show us. It's but, the one thing
2: <laughs> all of us has in common with the president.
1: Right, is that we all only have 140 characters. But I. I think the point is it's about foreign policy. It's particularly I think for these senators about North Korea where there is a real danger of miscalculation or unintended escalation with severe consequences for the United States and for our allies. Uh, And it's frustration over the Iran deal where President Trump did exactly what Susan said but not sort of ordering Congress around. He threatened Congress. Um, He said, I don't like this hot potato. I'm dumping it in your lap. And if you don't fix it for me, so I don't have to hold it anymore, I'm going to blow it up in your face. And that was that was what his speech said. And I think for senators who take seriously their responsibility on foreign policy, which, let's be honest, is not one of their greater authorities, um, that was offensive. <laughs> and uh, And they don't want the hot potato either. But more than that, they're offended by the president's very deliberate, very blatant attempt to escape responsibility for the consequences of his own actions in this case and to hang it around their necks instead. And so I think that you're going to see, if you see these guys laying down in front of the train, it's going to be on Russia sanctions, which he has not implemented. In other words, he's not carrying out the laws passed by Congress. On the Iran deal, where he's refusing to discharge responsibilities um, that were confirmed to him by Congress. Uh, and, and on North Korea and possibly on the other topic uh, that I know we're gonna cover today, which is the war on terrorism and, and what its scope is.
0: Uh, okay, well, let's, let's pivot to that now. So the deaths of four Americans in Niger has raised more and more questions, many of them still unanswered. Um, one of the most obvious ones is what exactly they were doing there. I think it came as a surprise to some lawmakers that we had substantial numbers of forces on the ground in Niger. Uh, not a surprise to some people who've been paying attention. But, but uh, it was interesting, nonetheless, that this did seem to come as something uh, of a revelation that we had forces uh, in harm's way there. Um, and, and it's really, I think, again, brought up this whole broader question, which we've talked about on the podcast before, about the authorization to use military force passed after 9-11, the question of whether the quote-unquote war on terror, however you want to phrase that, has broadened beyond the boundaries of that law, whether there needs to be another authorization. Um, Who were these people we were chasing in Niger? Uh, Who was doing the shooting? Ben, I mean, what what does this kind of tell us about, or how will you think this will inform that debate that has been ongoing and I, and I know you think hasn't been probably robust enough about whether we need to look again at what authorities are actually governing uh,
2: our troops deployed around the world. So I have very mixed feelings on this subject because uh, on the one hand I've argued now for many years uh, that the AUMF does need to be uh, re- uh, rewritten and that it is quite crazy from a Uh, just you know almost less from a legal point of view than from a kind of democratic point of view that small d democratic democratic point of view that we are conducting a you know large-scale military operations all over the world on the basis of a document that reflected uh, in September of 2001, the war we thought we would be fighting rather than authorizing the war that we actually are fighting or the many uh, little wars that we are actually fighting, and that this is not the authorization that you would expect to, to provide the basis for the sorts of military actions that the United States is routinely engaged in. Uh, That said, here's the basic problem. Uh, Congress hasn't gotten involved over a long period of time. It has rather acquiesced to the executive branch's decision that the AUMF covers more or less whatever the the executive branch wants to do in overseas counterterrorism. And when it has contemplated in a a semi-serious way the uh, passage of a new AUMF. It has tended to do so in an additive fashion, as in, here's an additional authorization for ISIS, for example, uh, which allows the executive branch to say, hey, we have all the authority we need. If you want to give us a little more, we won't say no. Uh, And so what Congress has never been willing to do, and for obvious reasons, is to say, we are authorizing X, but not Y, right? And whether that's a geographic restriction or a an organizational type restriction, uh, and that's a uh, and that what that means is that Congress has relegated its own role to something that is very largely symbolic at this point, and has uh, has really presided over the migration of what we traditionally think of as congressional war powers to the executive branch and that's a uh, you know uh, and and so part of me says yes Congress should absolutely get back involved and write the appropriate authorization. But it is with this knowledge that uh, they've kind of already accepted the principle that You know they pass something broad once and then the executive does what it wants with it for 15 or 17 years and and that's that's a reality that we're living with for better or for worse.
3: So, I mean, last week we talked about um, the use of sunset provisions, where you know you include a passage in the legislation that says, "And this law, you know, turns into a pumpkin on midnight." You know, ten years from now, five years from now, wherever, as being um, having some negative outcomes in, in the context of surveillance authorities because it forces debate on sort of the wrong issues and uh, and isn't necessarily the most productive use of of legislative time. <coughs> ben, I, I'm sort of wondering, uh, would the inclusion of a sunset provision have avoided? all of this, right, so I, we can talk about the, <coughs> the specific issues on sort of identifying what groups and how you do that over time. You know, should Congress have AUMFs that have five-year sunsets in all of them? I mean, is there sort of a best principles approach to it?
2: Well, so, I, and I think there's an antecedent question. I, I, I think, so, sunsets are a piece of the thing, and, and, I, and I do think there's something to be said for inclusion of sunsets in these authorizations. But there's an antecedent problem, which is that Uh, If the executive branch's position is, we have all the authority that we need, and by the way, we have much of the authority that we need whether or not you pass an authorization, because Article 2 gives us inherent authority to conduct anything that we regard as a self-defense operation, and we define self-defense extremely capaciously. Um, So, if... If that's the executive branch's position and Congress's position is we will you know whatever we think the AUMF meant as an original matter, we're certainly not going to tell you you can't interpret it at that in interpret it that way. and we will fund whatever operations you want to conduct, including in countries we didn't know you were operating like Niger. Uh, and uh, so and if we, provide an additional or supplemental or replacement authorization, it's going to authorize all the operations that you're currently conducting. So if that's the basic lay of the land, you do kind of scratch your head and ask yourself the question, why does it matter what Congress authorizes? And I think the honest answer to that question is that it has very little to do with law and a lot to do with civic hygiene and with the habits on the part of Congress of bothering to authorize executive military actions and that that is a habit that if you you fall out of the practice of using over a long period of time, it atrophies and you don't, and you actually do cede the war powers to the executive, but that the difference is not a practical difference that certain operations will be lawful if you behave this way, that are not lawful if you behave that way. Functionally, the president is gonna conduct the overseas counterterrorism operations that he believes is appropriate, and Congress is going to support them uh, with whatever authorization uh, the president regards as necessary in order to conduct them. And that's, a, I think, the reality that the last 17 or however many years uh, uh, um, of interaction over the AUMF has demonstrated very clearly.
1: You know, I I wouldn't disagree with any of that, Ben, but I think that in terms of congressional thinking, public perceptions, the civic hygiene component that you were just discussing, the last 15 or 17 years is different from what we are likely to see in the coming years because whatever else the US military has been doing around the world to combat the threat of uh, these extremist groups, we have had focal points in Iraq and in Afghanistan. We have had targets that have been uh, the focal points of our uh, ire. (laughs) And therefore, administrations, um, including this one until very recently, have been able to claim that they're operating according to some kind of comprehensive strategy, which involves winning in these specific places. And it's very interesting to me and a bit complicating but also important that this debate is resurfacing in the wake of this Niger raid and the deaths of of our four uh, troops. Um, It's happening just at the moment when ISIS has lost its territorial hold both in Iraq and in Syria and we are therefore entering a new phase in the war on terror. So all these other engagements around the globe in the Philippines, in the Sahel, um, have been ongoing but kind of uh, uh, marginalized by the focus on Iraq and Afghanistan, and members of Congress have been able to avoid confronting the fact that we have troops all over the world fighting all kinds of little groups because we think they might somehow be associated with the groups that we've been fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. But now, you know, if— those wars are in fact winding down, and that's a big if right um, uh, If the threat from ISIS is now shifting from a territorial ba- territorially based threat to something more diffuse, uh, then all of a sudden, Congress and the public has uh, an opportunity and perhaps an obligation to confront the fact that we've got around a thousand troops in the basin of Chad, Mali Niger, and they've been there for years Um, and we say that they are there on an advise, assist, and train mission, but they're actually engaged in operations like the one that got these guys killed. Um, And and so I think that it it poses a particular challenge because we can't write a new AUMF that says, the enemy is Al-Qaeda and associated forces, or the enemy is ISIS and associated forces. We have to have a discussion about something much more diffuse.
2: Yeah. So I, I, just to be clear, I am not making the case against congressional involvement here. I, in fact, uh, I... I A few years ago, uh, along with Jack Goldsmith and and Bobby Chesney and Matt Waxman, wrote a quite detailed model statute for what a replacement AUMF might look like. Um, My point is simply that the amount of water under the bridge that stands for the proposition that the president is kind of going to do what he wants and Congress is going to kind of tolerate it is at this point more than a trickle, and it's 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 it looks a little bit more like a giant lake than <laughs> than 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 a stream. And you know, in these kinds of separation of powers, war powers areas, uh, precedent and practice is a lot of what defines what is proper, and and we have done a lot of work in 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 that direction and we shouldn't we shouldn't overlook that
0: Um, let's talk about another one of our favorite former lawmakers Jeff sessions Jeff Sessions appeared last week, not in time for the podcast, sadly, before the Senate Judiciary Committee.
1: It feels like forever ago. Can you say
0: that? Yeah, I I, I forgot that he even—I forgot he was the Attorney General.
1: (laughs) I I don't know that I'd forgotten that, but I had almost forgotten that he testified a few days ago. Uh,
0: Ben and Susan, you had a great observation on not so much what Sessions did say in his testimony before the Judiciary Committee last Wednesday, but on what he didn't say. Uh, and when he was asked under, I think, fairly friendly questioning, I think, during a cordial exchange with Senator Sass, essentially, what are you doing as the head of the Justice Department and the nation's chief law enforcement officer to prepare for what we all believe and the intelligence community believes is going to be Russian interference in our elections next year and going forward? And the answer was
3: crickets essentially right so after his uh, you know his testimony which i also it feels like it was like weeks ago at this point um, right that you know sass really did it he said you know i'm not going to pressure you on the Russia investigation a lot of the headlines really were dominated by this question of you know that that sessions wasn't going to talk about the conversations he'd had with trump and sort of his assertion of executive privilege um, you know this was a, a certainly a quieter moment and one that had escaped a lot of media attention um, but it's in, in which you know sass asked you know not just a friendly question but an easy question a sort of a give me question you know Everybody is sort of, you know, uh, smearing uh, Jeff Sessions' name and dragging it through the mud for his, you know, various contacts with Russia in this administration. And here is a Republican senator, a nice Midwesterner, saying, you know, hey, but you don't like those Russians either. And what are you going to do about this now? Right, just teeing it up for him to say, well, here's what the FBI is doing, and here's what the Justice Department's doing, and here is uh, our plan for addressing what we have all acknowledged multiple times in writing, in some cases, is an ongoing threat that has materialized in in the past and is going to incur in the next election. And his answer basically was, well, the FBI has pretty good capability, just as a general matter. And whenever he was pushed again, you know, sort of by by SAS and then later by Senator Klobuchar. He just didn't have an, a plan at all. We've actually seen this from a number of different officials. So DNI Dan Coates hasn't really come up with what the intelligence community pl- plan is. We now say that there's no plan on the part of law enforcement. The FBI, sort of, they ho- they own the counterintelligence mission. Um, and in the areas in which Congress kind of has actually, you know, tried to put things back on the administration, pass sanctions, um, just basically a refusal. We're now three three weeks past the deadline to implement the newest rounds of Russia. Russian sanctions. The administration just hasn't done it. Um, and so it's this really sort of bizarre undercurrent against the backdrop of all this suspicion about Russia of of total inaction to address the threat that we all agree and know is coming in 2018 and in 2020.
0: And so what do we make of that? I mean you you're right this is a softball answer. You could you could <clears throat> just list off, you know, platitudes frankly if that's what you wanted to do. What do we make of the fact that there has truly not been an articulated strategy for dealing with this? And by the way, Republican members of Congress say this is a problem every senior uh, leader in the intelligence Who's community said, is on record saying it's a, a problem
1: point. yeah <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so I, I actually mm, think let me think know, about it
2: yeah. so I actually think it's worse than Susan just said I if, if you can imagine that because sessions actually at critical points didn't seem to understand the question and the question that SASS asked him was as Susan describes, we're not—I don't want to grill you about the ongoing investigation, from which Sessions is, in any event, recused, right? But I do want to know, looking forward, what are you going to do about this sort of thing in the future? And Sessions's answer was all about, to the extent that he answered it at all, was all about commercial espionage. Uh, cybersecurity issues, which is a long-standing concern of the Justice Department that goes well back into the Obama administration, and a subject about which, as many of uh, listeners will remember, the, the the last Justice Department brought some criminal cases against Chinese hackers uh, working for the PLA. And so, this is actually the commercial espionage side is a is a long-standing issue, and. Sessions really didn't seem to understand that information operations for political purposes by foreign intelligence services, and by one in particular, were of immediate threat to democracy. Uh, And that was despite the fact that that Sass was quite explicit on the point. He introduced it by saying there are, you know, uh, countries have figured out. The Russians have figured out that it's hard to compete with the United States, mili- you know, on, in the creation of military hardware, and that it's a lot cheaper and more efficient to do it using info ops. And like, despite that setup, Sessions kept kind of talking about, you know, commercial espionage, cybersecurity questions, which are really different. Uh, and so I, I. I think it was kind of worse than that he doesn't have a plan, it's that he actually appears not to have thought about the issue at all. And when Sass asked him, can you imagine a a proactive posture, was the words that Sass used to describe uh, how the Justice Department should be situating himself, uh, Sessions kind of said, you make a good point, I'm not sure we even have a review of that. And I I, I thought that was...
1: He doesn't have a plan and he doesn't have a clue. Right, they have
2: no process set up to think about it. Now, I actually suspect that Sessions is wrong about that, that there's actually probably a lot going on in the Justice Department because, and this is, I'm just making this up sitting here, but the Justice Department has two groups of people that think about this kind of cybersecurity issue all the time. One of them is the FBI counterintelligence group, which is substantial and, and, and very, very capable, uh, and has been thinking about this hard because they've been forced to because of the 2016 election cycle. Um, but the other is the National Security Division at the Justice Department, which is made up of extremely able and capable lawyers who there is just, in my personal judgment, no way they would not have some proactive thinking going on about this. So I think what's interesting is not that the Justice Department doesn't, hasn't, in fact, given this some thought. I'm actually sure they, they have it's interesting that the Attorney General doesn't appear to have any idea that whatever thought is going on is actually happening
0: and tomorrow and off that point I mean you've worked in a large bureaucracy before and yes there are certain things that don't that, that are occurring at the level of senior uh, uh, decision makers you know policy experts people who are appointed that don't necessarily percolate up to the boss but is that a, a plausible? Uh, outline of what's happening here. Well,
1: it's it's not plausible that it just doesn't percolate up to the boss on an issue of this importance. But you know, the question is, if if Ben's speculation is correct and there is work going on around this issue in the department, why isn't it getting it there? Where's the failure? You know, there's likely a failure of sessions. To ask the question, and it, you know, if he doesn't have a clue about the nature of the threat, that would suggest why he hasn't asked his staff the question. His staff fail to prepare him adequately for the hearing, and to say, well, you know, we can't talk; we don't want to talk about all these other things about his conversations with Trump, about the the ongoing Mueller investigation. So let's make sure he's well prepared to talk about the things that we can tell a good story on. That's what his staff should be doing for him. Um, and, you know, it makes me wonder, too, whether there's some kind of shyness um, within the department about flowing information up that has anything to do with Russia because he's recused himself on the investigation over the 2016 election. Interesting. Could it create a kind of bureaucratic uh, reticence?
0: Just keep him out of it altogether. Yeah.
1: I
3: mean, I, I agree that's a plausible account, but I, but I do think that it's his lack of interest is significant and predictive because if you don't have leadership buy-in, you're, it's not gonna get done in the long term. And we aren't talking about sort of minor initiatives that need to be going on. We're talking about major comprehensive plans. And so if it's not Sessions, it does raise the question, who is the cabinet member that is holding this issue for president trump who is saying this is serious put aside all that fake news you're totally right it's all made up but here's the real part we need to think about that you know is it Mattis? He's got a lot of other stuff on his plate. You know, naturally, it would be the attorney general. And so if Sessions isn't going to play that role, I think it's reasonable to ask, okay, well, then who is? I,
1: I also think there's another point here, which is where's the demand signal um, from Congress? Because these are the guys who are running, <laughs> right? And presumably, they, have a, they don't necessarily know that the Russians' uh, interference is going to favor them. In fact, it's likely just to screw things up. Um, And so they are the ones who should be placing these demands on the executive branch. I don't know if SAS asked this question as a softball question or if he asked it on behalf of concerned colleagues. But certainly in the follow-up, you would expect to see members of Congress going to the administration and saying, come on, it's not just, you know, we don't just need your help with raising money and we don't just need Trump to come out to rally the base. We need you to protect us against this stuff that could really screw us up.
0: Right. Okay, let's move on to object lessons tomorrow. Would you like to share first?
1: Um, I have a quick one, and it's a happy story. Uh, longtime listeners of Rational Security will uh, remember Ryan Evans, and, and NatSec nerds will know Ryan Evans of War on the Rocks. He's been on our podcast, uh, and War on the Rocks uh, has just formed and, and launched a new partnership with the University of Texas to publish something called the Texas National Security Review. They just launched yesterday, uh, and you can find them at tnsr.org. And this is really, you know, part of the, the broader um, opportunity that podcasts and websites like War on the Rocks uh, and um, and other platforms have created for those of us who work professionally on these issues is we have more and more opportunities for discussion between academia and policy and journalism uh, and, uh, and people who work on these issues in the private sector. And the Te- Texas National Security Review is designed, it's rooted in the academy, it cares about rigor and quality, but it's designed to help further that conversation at greater length than we do in podcasts or in short blog posts um, to really create a journal uh, where academics and non-academics can come together to talk about national security topics. So I urge you all to give it a look.
2: Great.
0: Uh, ben, what's your object?
2: So uh, since the beginning of the year, uh, as listeners will remember, there has been a flood of food products coming into uh security. And, and, beverage, secu- products. and, be- <laughs> and mm-hmm. beverage products. And particularly um, beverage products. And... But, uh, and we have uh, stopped uh, doing shout outs to everybody who sends us, you know, a bottle of scotch or whatnot. Although we are grateful. Although we are sure so are. grateful. But this I'm week, a little thirsty. this week I went down to the post office and since stamps.com is not sponsoring us, I can point out that I <laughs> stood in line at the post office, and I, I, I shared moments with my fellow human beings standing in line. And when I got there to the to the uh, end of uh, the post office line, in my mailbox um, was a large box from a woman uh, on Twitter. I actually don't know how to pronounce her last name. Her name is Nicole Zufle Zufle Z U E F L E. Yeah, there you get into Kofefe Land, uh, which contained. Baby cannon cookies, Um, and uh, these. uh, So we're we're, uh, posted. They were very
3: impressive. They were were fondant. Well done.
2: Extremely Mm. impressive cookies uh, with a perfectly lovely note, Uh, and uh, so I just want to give uh, Nicole a, 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 a shout out and 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 our all of our thanks. Um, and uh, you have really outdone yourself. The
1: canons are so proud, oh. yeah. They
2: they 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 send their a boom in in uh in in homage. Did they have a kick? Were they like cinnamon flavored? They were excellent. Oh, nice.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, my object this week, uh, if you like me had been trying to follow the long locked Twitter account of Reinhold Niebuhr, or Nieber, as we might say, uh, you were pleasantly surprised to find this week that it had been unlocked and that the true author of that Twitter account had finally revealed himself to be none other than the former director of the FBI, Jim Comey, um, who uh, has in fact been tweeting and has been in Iowa, although I don't think for any necessarily presidential ambitions it's been reported that he was there visiting family
1: he's wearing can't, running shoes can't a man just go to iowa can i just he go to iowa to? for Christ's <laughs> sake. Um,
0: but goby finally revealed this after a series of sort of you know enigmatic tweets about leadership and pelicans and you know which gave rise to all kinds of amazing conspiracy theories on twitter uh it revealed himself to be in fact the author of this twitter account by uh, releasing a picture of himself standing wearing his new balance seekers on the middle of a highway in picturesque farm country in Iowa. Um, uh, it is in fact him I think we've confirmed this although one fellow reporter I know said, oh come on, there's lots of six foot seven former FBI agents wearing new balance in Iowa.
3: It's also like a whole conspiracy like <laughs> there's no shadow.
0: There's no shadow the cornfields wouldn't be barren right now. Why was he that's not really Iowa. Um, oh, but anyway third Twitter. <laughs> But this, this is my object, because I'm just absolutely delighted by the fun that Jim Comey appears to be having at all our expense. And I, Susan... I have, my
3: object is subsidiary, which is an enterprising Twitter user who took all of the photos that Jim Comey has tweeted, which is sort of like, you know, of a lake or birds, and made them into um, like 80s album covers. So they're like one, James Taylor albums. It's like James Comey reputation, extremely careless, that's called <laughs> Honest Loyalty. That's a, that's a romance, that's a bad. That's great. Album. It's a ballad <laughs> album. Wildly nauseous, which was my <laughs> personal favorite. Um, so, you know, I for now one. is someone going to write the songs? They write. Oh, I think it's probably the happening gives right now. And gives. Yeah. Um, And I think Jim Comey's second act as like a polite internet troll is just delightful. Yeah. And one of the gifts of 2017, indeed. which isn't over yet. <laughs>
0: indeed, indeed. Uh, well, something is over. Our podcast. Brings us to the end of this week's show. Rational Security is a production
2: of Lawfare. No longer just Spaghetti on the Wall. Yeah, so we used to be a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions, but now we are folding this whole thing into the ever-growing Case lawfare empire. Exactly. We threw Law Spaghetti on, on the, the wall. wall and
0: lawfare stuck. Uh, you can still find our show archive, I suppose, though, at our website at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And remember, whenever you download the podcast from Apple or Stitcher or Overcast, or whoever, leave us a five-star canon review. uh, No
3: one is leaving this room. Until (laughs) until you all all download
0: the podcast and leave five stars, the doors have been locked. You'll find escape quite impossible. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's a joke. We're almost (laughs) (laughs) done. Our audio this week, I think, is performed by several people, thanks to Brookings uh, and our crew here. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia. Our music is performed this week by Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, and the co-equal Opposition.
1: (laughs) Very nice. Oh, very nice. Good. With I accompaniment co- wait, by... The, the co-equal opposition, is that like an emo band?
0: Yeah. Okay. Can't you see it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like, you know, Lonely in the Well of the Senate when only C-SPAN is watching. How playing. long until
3: someone just auto-tunes Flake's speech? And <laughs> oh, into like, oh yeah, yes. Gonna happen. Well,
2: and puts it on a Comey
0: album.
3: Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: Sophia Yan can do that for us while she's not actually performing our music. Uh, on behalf of my good friends... <laughs> <laughs> that are sitting right here in front of me. Susan, to <laughs> C. off and Wittes, Ben Woodis, and our fabulous guests. Give yourself a round of applause. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.